Well, it's great to kick off last week with Steve talking about Jesus at the centre. And it's a wonderful thing to concentrate on. Jesus at the centre of our very lives. And those songs that we sang this morning, I felt like saying, let's forget about the preach and carry on working. But, uh, sorry? <laughs> but we need to hear the word of God because it's part of our worship. It's hearing the truth of what God says in his word. I don't know about you, but I find bridges quite fascinating. Last year we went to Scotland to see some friends of ours. And it always sends kind of a shiver up my spine when I see the fourth bridge. Why, I don't know. And we went into London this week, Mary and I, and we walked down over the Millennium Bridge, down the, the bank of the Thames and over Tower Bridge. And again... This bridge, this, these two iconic bridges, these feats of engineering skill are amazing, absolutely amazing. I stand in awe of, of these bridges. But I want to talk this morning not about a man-made bridge, made out of steel and iron and painted, although they're fantastic. I want to talk about a man who is a bridge. A God-made bridge. A bridge not made out of steel and iron, but made out of flesh and blood. This man, like bridges, spans a gap. Bridges span a gap between two sides of a river or a gorge or whatever. The person I want to talk about this morning spans or connects a period of time. He's the bridge, if you like, between the Old Testament and the New Testament. He connects the Old Testament with the New Testament. And his name is called John the Baptist. He is the bridge. He is the bridge that connects the two. And his man is a man called with a specific, at a specific time and with a specific mission. God has set him apart. And if there's ever a man on a mission, it was John. John's parents, as you read through the book of John and other books, were Zechariah, who was a priest, and his wife Elizabeth. But they were childless. She was unable to conceive. And they were now getting on in years, a bit like me and some others in this place. The Bible says... They were both upright in the sight of God and observed all the Lord's commandments. This couple were a God-fearing, law-abiding couple who feared God and sought to live their lives in accordance with the Old Testament scriptures and commands. Just get rid of this if I may. Elizabeth and Zechariah had been praying a long time that they might have a child. They were getting beyond themselves. They thought it was never going to happen. But God answered their prayer, didn't he? And the birth was announced to Zechariah through an angelic visitation, a bit like Mary and our Lord's birth. John was a miracle baby. He was the first miracle baby after, before Jesus. Jesus was the second, but Jesus was born of a virgin. John had a physical father and mother. 
In Luke 1, 13 to 15, it says this. But the angel said to him, Do not be afraid, Zechariah, for your prayer has been heard, and your wife Elizabeth will bear you a son, and she'll call his name John. Now, they usually call the, the, the descendants by part of the relative. There's no relative called John, so this was unusual. And you will have joy and gladness, and many will rejoice at his birth, for he will be great before the Lord, and he must not drink wine or strong drink. And he will be filled with the Holy Spirit, even from his mother's womb. What an amazing child this was going to be. And it was foretold that he would be filled with the Holy Spirit from birth, even in his mother's womb. And he'd be raised under the strict code of the Nazarites. He wouldn't drink, he wouldn't do all the things that were associated with normal people in normal life. Nothing was going to hinder him from the mission God had called him to. He lived in self-denial, in the desert, in the wilderness, away from society and away from people. I find that very, very hard. I don't know how he did it. He must have had such a relationship with God in his early days. They knew God had called him for this purpose to what? Prepare the way for the coming Messiah. And he took it very seriously, very seriously indeed. His name was John, divinely given, it derives from the Hebrew term signifying Jehovah is gracious. He was known as the Baptist, why? It simply means an immerser, one who administers the rite of immersion. As you gather, this is no ordinary child. He had divine calling. And a divine destiny from God. He was a man on a mission. A bridge builder. An envoy. There had been a gap of 400 years. Now remember, the Old Testament finishes with the children of Israel in captivity in Babylon. In slavery under the Babylonian regime. There had been 400 years up to this point of silence. God had not uttered one word from heaven. No prophets had spoken for 400 years. You know, if God didn't speak to you, or you didn't get out of his word, for say six months to a year, you think, hmm, is God around? Is God interested in me? You look at this, 400, how many generations is that of people who had not heard from God? Who are, who are living life, but where's God? Where's God who promised he would never leave us or forsake us? Where's the God of the promise? You see, life is almost like a football match. about two halves. This was the first half. The second half, God comes on the scene. See, after Babylonians came Alexander the Great and other empires. And then in 63 BC, the Roman Empire conquered that part of the world. During these 400 years, various rulers have tried to stamp out Judaism. They'd even got copies of the Torah and sought to burn it and destroy it. Like Mao Zedong in China. He thought if he burned all the Bibles, he'd wipe out Christianity. He never succeeded. Israel was in a very low, backslidden state. They were wondering where the God of the Jews, where was Yahweh? Where was Yahweh? Alfred Edersheim, a Jewish convert to Christianity and a biblical scholar, graphically describes the conditions at the time. He says this, 
it has been rightly said that the idea of conscience, as we understand it, was unknown to heathenism. Absolute right did not exist. Might was right. The social relations exhibited, if possible, even deeper corruption. The sanctity of marriage had ceased. Abortion and the exposure and murder of newly born children were common and tolerated unnatural, advice, unnatural vices, which even the greatest philosophers practice, if not advocated. Attained proportions which defy description. Moral corruption made deep inroads into Judaism as well. We think we live in bad times. I tell you this, that time was far worse than the times we are living in today. So we have a situation where we find the Israelites living in a pagan society which was morally bankrupt and at rock bottom. Very few held on to the belief of God. They'd given up on God, many of them. And Judeans was just about surviving by the skin of its teeth. But into this situation, God sends his man. It's like he raised up Moses and Abraham before. Here was John the Baptist with a specific mission. So let's pick up the story. If you've got your Bibles, it'll come up. But we're looking at John 1, 29 to 34. I'm reading for the English Standard Version. It says this, The next day he saw Jesus come toward him and said, Behold, the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. What a statement. What a statement. Behold, the Lamb of God. He was seeing before his eyes, Jesus, the Messiah, God in the flesh. He knew what Jesus was going to do. He knew why Jesus was coming. And he says, behold, this is whom have I said, after me comes a man who ranks before me, because he was before me. I myself did not know him, but for this purpose I came, baptizing with water, that he might be revealed to, to Israel. And John bore witness. I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove, and it remained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptize with water said to me, He on whom you see the Spirit descend remain. This is he who baptizes with the Holy Spirit. And I have seen and have borne witness that this is the Son of God. Hallelujah. I want to split this into two sections this morning. I believe John had a twofold mission. One, to prepare the way. And the second one, to present the way. Don't remember, Jesus said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. So firstly, he came to prepare the way. John was an envoy. What is an envoy? It's a person with a specific task of going to a place to prepare where a dignitary, a king, a queen, a president would come. He would get everything in order to make it easier for when the, the guy came. You can imagine, can't you, if uh, Barack Obama goes somewhere, how many envoys go before him? How many CIA agents and FBI agents go to make sure the place is properly prepared? It's to make his job easier, that he has a platform for his message, a platform for him to speak into the situation. If you look at Luke 3, 4, it says... As it is written in the book of the words of Isaiah, the prophet, saying, The voice of one crying in the wilderness, prepare ye the way of the Lord, make his path straight. This is John's job. 
Every valley shall be filled and every mountain hill shall be brought low and the crooked shall be made straight and the rough ways shall be made smooth. John was preparing for this actually to happen. He was being preparing for Jesus' ministry. He was making, creating favourable, if you like, environment for Jesus to minister into. John, therefore, was a key figure in the preparation of Jesus' ministry. In the last book of the Old Testament, Malachi says, Behold, I send my messenger, and he will prepare the way before me. So the Jews were holding on to this, that there's this promised Messiah coming. But when? They were running out of patience with God, as it were. And it goes on, The Lord whom you seek will suddenly come to his temple, and the messenger of the covenant in whom you delight. Behold, He's coming, says the Lord of hosts. John had God's affirmation and commission. And if you think of John when he came, what it describes in the Bible of John is a bit of a weirdo, isn't it? Let's be honest. You know, he's a bloke dressed in camel's hair, camel skins. He eats wild locusts and honey. He's got a beard. He's probably unwashed, unkept. I don't know. But he was a bit of a scary bloke, I would have thought. Yet, yet, he attracted people to him. He was out in the wilderness. He didn't go into the towns. He didn't go and mix. He wasn't a party goer, you know. He wasn't socialising. He was out in the wilderness. And yet people sought him out. Why? Because he had an authentic message from God. He had an anointing from God. And he knew what he'd been called to do. And people went out, have you, have, have, you, have you seen this guy out there? Could this be the Messiah? John said he wasn't the Messiah, he made that perfectly clear. But he told them they'd come to prepare the way for the Messiah, and people were drawn to him. Jesus once said, didn't he? John came neither eating nor drinking, and they say he has a demon. See, eating and drinking apparently stood for socialising in those days. As I said, John was no party-goer. His lifestyle almost appeared demonic, didn't he? Like those possessed of evil spirits often frequented the wilderness and the desolate places and the desert. He did not seek out the multitudes. Rather, they were attracted to him. Something about him. See, the Jews, after not hearing for 400 years, suddenly thought, is this the prophet? Is this the prophet? Is this a prophet? He looked like a prophet. And when he spoke, he came with a message. And his message was not an easy one, was it? He said, repent. Repent. You don't hear that in churches much today, do you? Repent. We need to hear it more in churches. There's a God who's ready to forgive our sins. If we repent. If we repent. He came to confront the sin of the people in their backslidden state and urged them to repent and be baptised for the forgiveness of their sins. He said this in Luke 3, 7. He said, therefore to the crowds that came out to be baptised, you brood of vipers. Can you imagine, you know, going to a meeting and the preacher stands up and says, you brood of vipers. What, What a... What a thing to say. And yet he was telling the truth. They were acting like that. He said, who warned you to flee from the wrath to come? But he was doing that. And then he said, bear fruits in keeping 
with repentance. He preached a message of repentance and to produce fruit in keeping with that repentance. In other words, let your actions display what you believe. If you follow it through in Matthew's Gospel and Luke's Gospel, he spoke about sharing with those in need, paying your proper taxes, etc., doing the right thing and living righteously, all the things actually that Jesus preached. See, we often hear people, oh, so-and-so's come to Christ. So-and-so's been saved or converted. And while I rejoice in that, and I do, I do look for the fruits. I look for the evidence of somebody who's truly had an encounter with God, who's truly been born again, repented of their sin, and going on with God. There must be evidence of new birth. And if, the evidence, if there's no evidence, no fruits in keeping with their repentance... Well, I put a big question mark over their conversion. There must be evidence of new life. If God's life is living within us, it must come out by what we speak, what we say, what we do and what we don't do in our lifestyle and everything else. Jesus came to prepare the way. He was the bridge from the Old Testament law with its ceremonial observances and sacrifices, etc. He came to point people to Jesus Christ, the one who would do away with the annual and daily sacrifices offered by the priest for our sins. He would be the perfect once for all sacrifice for people, no matter what their colour, no matter what their creed, no matter what their ethnicity. He was there for the whole world. The whole of the Old Testament system was pointing forward to what would happen someday in the final sacrifice for sin. And John is saying, it is happening now before your eyes. Behold, look, the Lamb of God, the Messiah, the one who's prophesied by the Old Test- in the Old Testament scriptures. The Messiah, he's come, he is here. So he comes to prepare the way. Secondly, he comes to present the way. Behold the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world. I looked at that word, behold. Because I thought, what made him say that? Because there's nothing... Jesus didn't look any different from anybody else. He was just a man in the street. He was a man in the crowd. And yet, when he came forward, John looked at him and said, behold. It was an exclamation of wonderment, of amazement, of admiration, if you like. Behold the Lamb of God. It's a wonder he didn't fall on his knees and worship Jesus at that very moment in time. John is full of wonderment that the Almighty God, the creator of the universe, should provide a lamb for burnt offering. The sacrifice of lambs was very important in the Jewish religious life and sacrificial system. Wasn't it, Keith? <laughs> When John referred to Jesus as the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world, the Jews who heard him might have immediately thought of various important sacrifices at the time. The time of the Passover was very near at this moment in time. And their first thought might have been the sacrificial Passover lamb. And the Passover feast was one of the main Jewish feasts and celebrations in the remembrance of God's deliverance of the Israelites out of Egypt. If you remember, 
God told Moses to tell the people to slay a lamb without spot, without blemish, a perfect lamb. Take its blood, put it on the doorposts, on the lintels. And when the angel of death came over, the firstborn would not be touched. Yeah? Now, if a Jew had ignored God's advice and decided to think, oh, well, I'm not bothered about that. I'm not going to bother putting that on. Do you think their firstborn would have survived? Good question, isn't it? No, they wouldn't. They wouldn't have survived because they didn't follow God's instructions. If we want to be saved, we've got to follow biblical instructions. Repent and be baptised. Steve was talking about water baptism this morning. Have you been baptised in water since you've been saved? If not, it's Jesus' command. Jesus said, repent and be baptised, forgiveness of sins. We've got to do it the biblical way. We've got to do it God's way, not our way. Oh, well, I don't need to be baptised. No, we've got to do it God's way. What the word says, be baptised. Another important sacrifice involving lambs was the daily sacrifice at the temple. I don't know if you know, but every morning and every evening, a lamb was sacrificed in the temple for the sins of the people. And these daily sacrifices, like all the others, were simply to point people to a day when the perfect Lamb of God will be sacrificed once for all to take away the sins of the people once for all. Jesus died once for all. Aren't you pleased we don't have to sacrifice every morning and evening lambs for our sins? I am. I I wouldn't like to kill a little lamb. Would you? (laughs) But if God said we had to do it, it's a different matter. Anyway, we won't go down that line. You see, Jesus' death on the cross corresponded with the exact time of the evening sacrifice. When Jesus hung on that cross, that was the time they would have been making the evening sacrifice in the temple. It's no coincidence that that happened. God had planned it all like that. You see, the Jews at that time would also have been familiar with the Old Testament prophets, Jeremiah and Isaiah, who foretold the coming of one who would be brought like a lamb led to the slaughter. You can read it in Jeremiah eleven nineteen and Isaiah 53. And this lamb, his name was Jesus, whose sufferings and sacrifice would provide redemption for Israel. And we might find the idea of sacrificial a bit strange today, or sacrificing a bit strange. But the concept of restitution is still one we can understand, isn't it? We know that the wages of sin, like the Bible says, is what? Death. And then what does it do? It separates us from God. We also know the Bible teaches that we're all sinners, and none of us is righteous before God. Romans 3.23, for all have sinned. And fallen short of the glory of God. Anybody in here not sinned? We've all sinned, haven't we? Fallen short of the glory of God. Because our sin, we are separated from God and stand guilty before him. Therefore, the only hope that we have is if he, that's God, prepares a way for us to be reconciled back to himself. And that is what he did by sending Jesus to die on the cross. Christ died and rose again to reconcile us back to the Father. To pay the penalty for our sins. It's through the death of Jesus on the cross as God's perfect sacrifice for sin and his resurrection three days later that we can now have eternal life. If 
we believe and put our faith in him. If we believe and put our faith in. 1 Peter 1.18 says this. I love this, this verse of scripture. For you know that it was not with perishable things such as silver or gold that you were redeemed from the empty way of life handed down to you from your forefathers. But with the precious blood of Christ, a lamb without blemish or defect, he was chosen before the creation of the world. This was God's plan before the creation of the world even. But it was revealed in these last times for your sake. Through him, you believe in God, who raised him from the dead and glorified him And so your faith and hope are in God. So Jesus, or John, rather, presents Jesus as the God-given lamb who replaces the Old Testament sacrifices and will be ultimately sacrificed for the sins of the whole world. I think one of the most important things that John says as he presents Jesus as the way is that he pronounces two vital components of our salvation. Jesus not only saves us from our sins and gives us eternal life, that is very, very important, but also equally as important is that, I don't know if you noticed it, but he also announces the baptism that Jesus will administer. A different baptism to John's. See, John prints Jesus as Saviour, but also as the baptiser with the Holy Spirit. There's two parts of salvation. There's been receiving Christ as your saviour and then being baptised in the Holy Spirit as well as being baptised in water. John goes on, he says this in 132, 34, and John bore witness, I saw the Spirit descend from heaven like a dove and it repained on him. I myself did not know him, but he who sent me to baptise with water said to me, now this is God who said to him, he on whom you see the Spirit descend remain, this is he who what? baptizes with the Holy Spirit. Who baptizes with the Holy Spirit? Jesus. And yet many people are afraid of the baptism of the Spirit. They're afraid of this empowering that God has provided for us. When John saw the Holy Spirit rest on Jesus in the form of a dove, he knew somehow for certain that this was the Messiah. This on whom you see the Holy Spirit rest and remain. Jesus was absolutely full of the Holy Spirit. So it's obvious that he must be the one who baptises in the Holy Spirit as well. John, I believe, was pointing to the day of Pentecost when God would pour out his Spirit on all flesh. This again is connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament. Age of the law with the age of the Spirit. The Old Testament prophet Joel said, didn't he? I will pour out my Spirit on all flesh. God said through him. And this was fulfilled on the day of Pentecost in Acts 1. John came as a witness to Christ and we are baptised in the Holy Spirit to empower us to be a witness for Christ. John's baptism with water was a preparatory... Oh, I knew I'd get that wrong. Prep, up, I mean, you know what I mean. Because it was a baptism for repentance and symbolised washing away of sins. Jesus, however, would baptise with what? The Holy Spirit. He would send the Holy Spirit on all believers to empower them to have power over temptation and to live a victorious Christian life. You know, I struggled in my Christian life for 18 months. 
And my pastor, I'm glad he said it. He said, Pete, you need to be baptized in the spirit. You need to see the power of God. And when I got baptized in the spirit, what a difference it made to my Christian life. My Christian life took off. I was able then to to resist temptation and walk in the light. Ezekiel 36 says this again, connecting the Old Testament with the New Testament. And I will put my spirit within you and cause you to what? Walk in my statutes and be careful to obey my rules. See, the Old Testament law pointed out our sin, but never gave us any help in overcoming our sin. Jesus makes provision of that through the Holy Spirit. Paul knew the difference to living a life as a Christian in the Old Testament law compared with living life as a new creation in Christ Jesus by the power of the Spirit. Romans 7.14. I know this is a difficult passage and there's different connotations on this, but I just want to put this in here. Paul said this, For we know that the law is spiritually, it's good. But I am of the flesh, sold under sin. For I do not understand my own actions. For I do not do what I want. But I do the very thing I hate. Did you ever? I was a bit like that before I got baptised in the Spirit. Now if I do what I do not want, I agree with the law, that is good. For I know that nothing good dwells in me that is in my flesh. For I do not do the good I want, but the evil I do not want is what I keep on doing. So I find it to be a law that when I do... When I want to do right, evil lies close at hand. Then he says, wretched man that I am. Who will deliver me from this body of death? Who? And then he goes on. Thanks be to God through Jesus Christ our Lord. Jesus died and rose again and ascended to the Father so that the Holy Spirit could come. And that we could be empowered to live the life that God had ordained for us in the power of the spirit to make a difference to society in our lives and the way we conduct our lives that people will see the difference in us and in verse chapter 80 I I headed this life in the spirit it's got that heading in my bible he says there is therefore now no condemnation for those who are in Christ Jesus for what the law of the spirit of life has set you free In Christ Jesus, from the law of sin and death, we've been delivered from the Old Testament and all its rules, its regulations and its ceremonies. Yeah, we still keep the Ten Commandments, but we've been delivered from all the ceremonies, the sacrifices, and we now to live life in the Spirit. Born again of the Spirit, filled with the Spirit, walking in the Spirit. That's what God's called us to. And it's only Spirit-filled Christians that will make a difference in this world. Because they have the light within them, they have the power within them to make a difference. You see, the Holy Spirit, he was present in creation of the world. We've been singing some of these wonderful songs. And he is the power behind the rebirth of every Christian. And he causes us to be born again and then gives us the power we need to live the Christian life. Don't forget... The Holy Spirit is God the Holy Spirit, third person of the Trinity. I found this quote of John Piper, the theologian. I think this is a wonderful quote, and I've put it up here. He says this, If you are born again, but you are languishing in a season of weakness and fear and defeat, one way to describe what you need is to be baptised in the Spirit. That is, you need a fresh outpouring of his Christ-revealing, heart-awakening, sin-defeating, boldness-producing power. Don't you just love that sentence? Let me read it again. 
That is, you need a fresh outpouring of Christ-revealing, heart-awakening, sin-defeating, boldness-producing power. Is that what you want? That's what's on offer with the Holy Spirit. It's a wonder... I'm going to get that and frame that song. I, I just love that. It just speaks to me so much of what God in Christ has done for us in dying and resurrecting, but also ascending, that we might have the Spirit. That we might have the Spirit. I nearly packed in Christianity before I was baptised in the Spirit. I said, this is too hard. I can't live like this. No way. I was in a holiness church at the time, which was very legalistic. I said, no way can I keep this up. No way at all. And then I got baptised in the Spirit. And what a difference. What a change. So, he says, every spiritual need that we have before and after conversion is supplied by Christ immersing us in greater and lesser degrees in the Holy Spirit. John came to prepare the way. Jesus, John came to present the way. And so to finish, I want to ask a question. I don't know all of you here this morning, but I want to ask you these questions. Have you repented of your sins and accepted Jesus Christ as your Saviour and Lord? Have you been baptised in water? Have you consequently been baptised in the Holy Spirit to enable you to live the Christian life and be a witness for Christ? See, this morning, if you've never put your trust in Jesus Christ who came to save you from your sins and give you a new start in life and eternal life, then today he's calling you. He's calling you. Today can be your life-changing day. Christian, if you've never been baptised in water since your conversion, get baptised. <laughs> it's a command from God. Read it in the scriptures. If you've never been baptised in the Holy Spirit, then Jesus is waiting to baptise you with his Holy Spirit. And finally, if you're feeling a little weary, not, not firing on all cylinders spiritually, then Jesus wants to fill you again. There's initial baptism of the Spirit, but there's many fillings. Paul says in Ephesians, we need to go on being filled with the Spirit. Let's pray. Father, this morning we want to thank you that you sent Jesus. Behold, the Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. Oh God, we stand before you, sit before you, and we're so grateful that you took it upon yourself to provide the burnt offering, you to provide the sacrifice. Your only son, who lived a spotless life, was the spotless Lamb of God, who takes away the sin of the world. You just call upon us to repent and give our life to you.